When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. My name is Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken, and welcome to another week in the Book of Mormon. Last week, we studied Alma chapter 23 through 29. Tons of material. There were five videos for that. Sorry, not sorry, but so much amazing stuff to cover. This week, only two chapters, Alma 30 and Alma 31. But those are two chapters that I have been looking forward to. My PhD work centers on anti-religious rhetoric, the kinds of things people say to destroy one another's faith. And so my eyes always kind of light up when I get to study an Antichrist in the Book of Mormon. Whether it's Sherem in Jacob chapter 7, or Nehor in Alma chapter 1, or the Antichrist to end all Antichrists, well, with the exception of Lucifer, obviously, here in Alma chapter 30, namely Korihor. For years I've been studying polemics, which is the technical term for anti-religious writing or speech, as opposed to apologetics, which is the defense of that faith. Alma 30 is a masterpiece. When you watch Polemics and apologetics come face to face in the person of Korahor and Alma. This is not meant to be a Bible bash. That's not what they're doing. But to clarify belief in the face of very strong opposition, well, welcome to the latter days, right? The Book of Mormon is a scale model for the last days. At least Mormon's abridgment of the large plates is. And so if you start in Mosiah, the whole book is about organizing the church setting it on a firm foundation. The book of Alma then begins with Alma whipping the church into shape, getting it ready. Ready for what? For this massive influx of new converts as the missionary chapters that we've spent the last two weeks on begin. We're soon to turn our attention to the wars at the end of the book of Alma. And then the signs of the times in Helaman and the beginning of 3rd Nephi and the coming of Christ in 3rd Nephi and the mini millennium in 4th Nephi. Are you seeing the parallels? The church is organized, set on a firm foundation. Missionaries go out to bring scattered Israel in. There are then wars and rumors of wars, the signs of the times, the coming of Christ and the millennial reign of Jesus. I mean, it's eerie when you really start seeing it. The Book of Mormon really is what we're living, not just what we're studying. Sandwiched between these missionary chapters and these war chapters, or in our context, between the massive growth of the church and then those final days of wars and rumors of wars. What do you have in the middle? From Alma 30 to about Alma 42, so the next several weeks of Come Follow Me. First of all, you have faith loss. You have people hammering away at belief in hopes of shaking us. Why do you think I call this channel Unshaken? We're living in this period. Earthquakes in diverse places with the very elect shaking in their faith and falling from the faith. You then have Alma and others going out to try to reclaim those whose faith has been shaken. The Zoramites particularly. Building faith like you see in Alma 32. You see them planting the seeds of faith there and growing into a faith in Christ in 33 and 34. You see a righteous parent in Alma trying to strengthen the faith of his own family members in 36 through 42. A purification of their discipleship. 
and then the war chapters begin. You see what we're living in? A time of shaken faith where we will need to strengthen our testimonies, focus on Jesus Christ, strengthen our families, purify our discipleship, because the end is coming. This is, after all, the latter days. So if we want to be prepared for the war chapters, then we need to be able to endure the shaking chapters like Alma chapter 30 and 31. Paul prophesied of days like this before the second coming of Christ. He wrote to Timothy, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, things that take us away from Christ and towards his adversary, seducing spirits. So often the Antichrist speak in flattering words, seductive things, things that we want to hear. There's the flattery that draw us towards them. There's the seduction. We need to learn how to stand firm. And chapters like this will help us do it. So let's begin. For context, look at verse 1. Behold, now it came to pass that after the people of Ammon were established in the land of Jershon. So they're set, they're secure. That's all that we saw last week. In fact, I love the juxtaposition here. On the one hand, you have a group of new converts being firmly established in the faith and in the church. And right on the heels, you meet someone who's trying to cause the opposite to occur. Shaking people's faith. Hammering away at that foundation. Not wanting them to be established In fact, you even see a juxtaposition between chapter 29, Alma rejoicing in his opportunity to serve the Lord, compared to Korahor in chapter 30, this Antichrist trying to destroy everything. An instrument in God's hand versus a weapon aimed at God's heart. But back to verse 1, the people are established, the Lamanites are driven out of the land, and the dead are buried. In verse 2, there is fasting and mourning and prayer. And by the end of that verse, there begins to be continual peace throughout all the land. So far, so good, right? If we didn't know what was coming, we'd think, oh, this is a happy ending. And the people of Zarahemla lived happily ever after, right? Wrong. This is simply the calm before the storm. In fact, having served my mission in the Caribbean, every fall was hurricane season. And the two falls that I spent on the island, we had hurricanes come through. Some small, some large, one that threatened to completely destroy our island and ended up veering off at the very last second. But there's an interesting thing about hurricanes. There is an eye of the storm where things are calm. But once it passes over you, you're back in the hurricane. But this is the part I didn't know until I'd lived through a Caribbean hurricane season. The backside of the hurricane, in Spanish they call it the virason. And what makes the virason so dangerous is that all the winds are now coming from the opposite direction. Think about it. Let's say you have a storm that's moving clockwise, and here's your little island. As the storm approaches, all of the wind is going west to east. It's starting to move the trees. It's starting to push everything in this direction. Then it passes over the eye of the storm, and nothing's happening. Everything's calm. But then once the eye of the storm passes over, and you're in the backside of the hurricane, the virason, Now all the wind is crossing the island east to west. These trees that have been bent this way can now be snapped off as the wind comes from the opposite direction. The first few verses of Alma 30 are the eye of the storm, and the coming of Korahor is the virason. 
The last few chapters we studied, the wind was coming in a physical direction. Nephites versus Lamanites. Lots of death and destruction. Mourning from widows and their family members over the slain. Peace is now here. But prepare yourself because the winds are starting to pick up and they're not coming in a physical direction. They are now coming in a spiritual direction. We're not the pioneers anymore with their physical hardships, the persecution and the poverty. Now it's the spiritual, the intellectual winds that are howling around us. And if church members survived the front end of the storm, we better prepare ourselves to endure the back end. If we were pushed when the winds were coming from one direction, beware of being snapped off once they come from the other. What kept them strong through this period? The eye of the storm. Verse 3, the people did observe to keep the commandments of the Lord. They were strict in observing the ordinances of God according to the law of Moses. For they were taught to keep the law of Moses until it should be fulfilled. That until reminds us that the real focus of the law as they taught it and as they lived it was on preparing for the coming of Jesus Christ. These were works with an eye to faith. Works that were sanctified by the faith which infused them. Verse 4, the good news continues, no disturbance that year. Verse 5, the year after that, still continual peace. By the end of verse 5, things have been good for a while now. And I'm amazed at how quickly we can go back to our old feelings of security. I mean, look around currently at the easing of social distancing requirements, the danger level for the global pandemic going from red to orange to yellow, and how quickly we go, oh, take the masks off. Let's go back to life as it was. There is a danger in times of safety and security because they breed contentment, that's good, but contentment often breeds complacency, and that's not good. It makes conditions ripe for a second wave of the disease. Or we take down our storm shutters thinking that the storm is over when that was only the eye that just passed over us. Sure enough, in verse 6, by the end of that year of peace, there came a man into the land of Zarahemla, and he was Antichrist. Now, that's the first thing that we learn about him. We don't yet know his name. We don't know anything else about him. The number one thing we know right now, he is Antichrist. Now, we're going to get into the weeds very quickly and see his specific beliefs and the kinds of things he tries to hammer away at. But do not lose sight of what you know from the very beginning. He's Antichrist. Yes, he's anti-prophet and anti-scripture. Yes, he's anti-tradition. But first and foremost, he is anti-Christ. People might say that, no, I only have questions or opposition to this doctrine or that practice, this policy or that person. But again, look a little further through the scope and you tend to find Jesus Christ there. The Lamanites that we just studied, that say they believe in the Great Spirit, but didn't think that it mattered what they did, that's anti-Christ. Because if there's no sin then there's no need for an atonement. What's the point of Jesus? Even the two antichrists we've met previously were both taking aim at Jesus, though they came at him from opposite directions. You got Sherem saying, it's all about the law of Moses. Just check out these boxes and you're saved. It doesn't have anything to do with some future coming of a promised Messiah. That's the works righteousness side of antichrist. As long as you do all these things, who needs Jesus? Compare that to Nehor in Alma 1, and you have this easygoing universalism where it doesn't matter what you do. There's no boxes to check, and you'll still be saved. That's the cheap grace side of Antichrist. 
You see why Latter-day Saints and evangelical Christians so often are at loggerheads with each other? Even though we have so much in common, they look at us and are scared to death of works righteousness. They see sherem in us. And we look at them and see cheap grace and see Nehor all over them. James was right. Faith without works is dead. And Elder Oaks was right too, that works without faith is deader. You have to have them both. You uncouple that contrary, you sever the two halves of the whole, and either side is anti-Christ. It's interesting that the Amulonites and the Amlicites slash Amalekites, they're probably the same group like we talked about last time, they show the same dichotomy. At least at the beginning, the Amulonites were all about Law of Moses. Those were the wicked priests of Noah, right? But they thought the Law of Moses had nothing to do with the coming of Christ. We can do anything we want as long as we keep these ordinances and performances. Meanwhile, the Amlicites slash Amalekites, well, you can do anything you want. You don't even need to do any of that because everybody's going to be saved. There's no problem from either perspective, whether there's a bunch of boxes to check on one side or there's no boxes at all. Either way, there's no sin to speak of, which means there's no need for an atonement. We're approaching this issue from two different angles, but at the end of the day, we do agree on this. There's no need for Jesus. Again, we'll get into the specifics of Korahor, but don't forget what you know about him from the very beginning. This man and his doctrines are anti-Christ. And it is Jesus that we are here to defend. That's one line of defense that absolutely has to hold. Well, what does this Antichrist do? Verse 6, he began to preach unto the people against the prophecies which had been spoken by the prophets concerning the coming of Christ. So often a preliminary step towards taking down Jesus is taking down his servants first. Whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same, right? So if I can diminish the authority of prophets, Christ's representatives and mouthpieces upon the earth, then am I forcing a belief upon people that God cannot speak? Am I muzzling deity by saying there's no such thing as the gift of prophecy? Sherem denied that gift. Zeezrom denied that gift. Anytime we deny prophets, see, prophets are a rival authority. That's one of the reasons that typically throughout history, governments have tried to either completely banish religion or fully establish religion. Either eliminate the competition or subsume it under your own authority. Either way, the state becomes the more powerful. And then it can either speak through its religion, kind of channel that authority, even though it's the king or the dictator or the state that is the puppeteer behind it, or the other option, like I said, completely eliminate religion so there's no rival voice, no rival authority. So that's one part. Eliminate prophets because that's a rival authority. The other part is to eliminate prophecy. You see, that's what Korahor is doing, preaching against the prophecies. Because if a prophet can speak about the future, then you better believe that he's qualified to speak about the present. To help the society that he's speaking to either get to the future or avoid the future that he is foreseeing depending on whether it's a good one or a bad one. It's always both, right? You see, even in the Bible dictionary, when it talks about a prophet, we often associate it all with foretelling. But the more common, and honestly, often the more important, is not foretelling, but forthtelling. Foretelling is speaking of the future. Forthtelling is talking about the present or speaking to the present, very forthrightly saying, this is how things ought to be, or this future will come. Even when I was at Divinity School, they talked often about giving a prophetic witness. The church needs to be a prophetic witness. 
And even in strands of Christianity that today don't really believe in the gift of prophecy, it's too miraculous, too supernatural for their enlightenment leanings, they still hold to that forth-telling role, that the church needs to be able to speak truth to power. There's the rival authority side. That they need to stand as a witness for social justice, for example. That's the forth-telling. This is what things must be in the present in hopes of achieving a better future for us all. So back to verse 6, you see what Korahor is doing. My number one goal is to take down Jesus, but that's a lofty target. How am I going to get there? Let's take down his representatives. Eliminate prophets, the rival authority. Eliminate prophecy, both the foretelling and the forthtelling. As long as they keep prophesying that Jesus is going to come, then people will still listen to them when they tell them what they need to be doing in the meantime to prepare. As long as they keep talking about that future atonement, then their declarations about present sin will sound in people's ears. And that is not what Korahor wants. Like every other Antichrist we've met, he wants no conversation about present sin or sinfulness. So he has to eliminate any talk about a need for the coming of Christ. Now he was welcome to believe that. Verse 7, there was no law against a man's belief. We saw that with Nehor earlier, right? Priestcraft wasn't the problem. It was priestcraft enforced by the sword. Here, that law is still in place. It was strictly contrary to the commands of God that there should be a law which should bring men onto unequal grounds. I kept thinking about this week. How would enforcing beliefs bring about inequality? We've seen a lot through the end of Mosiah and much of Alma about this need to establish equality in the land. Back at the end of chapter 28, he talked about this inequality among men because of sin and transgression. Well, wouldn't forcing people to believe eliminate that possible inequality? No, because forcing people to believe doesn't work. I can force you to obey, right? I can, I can force you to fall into line on certain things, but belief, how I view the world, that's one thing that can't be taken. I love what Viktor Frankl talks about in Man's Search for Meaning, that even in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany, how he viewed the world and his own situation in it. That was one thing the Nazis could never take from him. Now, in that situation, it was trying to force evil upon people. But here, even if you're trying to force good upon people, if it's forced, then it's not really good. It's why Mosiah ended the reign of the kings. It's why Alma took off his political hat just to maintain his spiritual one. Legislating action is one thing, but legislating belief, isn't that forced hypocrisy? There's an inequality there. We want sincerity. We want conviction. Even if your beliefs are different from mine, let there be a level playing field. Claim the privilege of worshiping God according to the dictates of your own conscience, but allow all other people the same privilege. Let them worship how, where, or what they may. There's an equality there, a religious freedom for all. That's the kind of equal society that the Nephites are trying to ensure. In verse 8, it's based on that famous Old Testament scripture, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. Choice is yours. Verse 9, if you desire to serve God, it's your privilege. I love that he uses privilege there, by the way. Same word in the 11th article of faith. Not your duty, not your burden, it's your privilege. And then he even corrects himself. It's not just your privilege to serve God if you want to serve him. It's your privilege to serve God if you believe in him. There seems to be a subtle suggestion there that if you believe in God, if you know him for who he is, 
then how could you not have a desire to serve him? Just review all that Ammon gloried in back in 26 and all Alma gloried in in 29. If you believe in God, if you know him, then of course you want to serve. You want to be an instrument in his hands. That is your joy and rejoicing. And it's your privilege. You can. On the other hand, if you don't believe in God, then there's no law that's going to punish you for your disbelief. Now, if you murdered or robbed or stole or committed adultery, yes, those are all in the Ten Commandments, but that is a civil law as much as it is a spiritual one. Those all have to do with the second great commandment, how you deal with your neighbor, not primarily the first great commandment, whether you believe or disbelieve, whether you serve or don't serve, whether you obey or don't obey God. That second half of the Decalogue can be legislated. First half, not so much. Again, in 11, you'll be judged according to your crimes. That's the civil side. But there's no law against your belief. That's the spiritual side. That keeps everybody on equal grounds. Now back to our villain. Verse 12, this Antichrist, again, that's what you need to know about him. Second time it's been reiterated. Whose name was Korahor. Now we finally have the name. The law could have no hold on him. He was smarter than Nehor. He made sure to steer clear of crime, of legal issues. But he begins to preach. He preaches, first and foremost, that there should be no Christ. But this is how he did it specifically. Verses 13 through 18 are basically Korahor's first round of irreligion. We'll see round two when he goes to face Gadona, and then round three when he goes to face Alma. I'm going to try to combine all three rounds into one for us so we can start to see the big picture. What is it that Korahor is trying to say? He'll repeat himself frequently, though with different words, in each of the three rounds. But I'm going to boil it down to these four things, all pointing to the ultimate one thing, there is no Christ. But here's the four things that will be emphasized and re-emphasized throughout his three rounds of anti-Christian attack. The four things can be put into two pairs, and there's a split within each one. The first is he will blame and belittle. And the second pair, he will question beliefs and excuse behaviors. And all four of them, blaming and belittling, questioning beliefs and excusing behaviors, are meant to get you to question Christ as well as his servants. Again, work backwards from this. If there's no Jesus, there's no atonement. If there's no atonement, then who cares about the fall? If there's no Christ, there's no sin. And you can do whatever you want. That always tends to be the goal. Now let's tackle the first pair first. To blame and to belittle. Another way to say this, if you like the letter D more than the letter B, is to demonize and dismiss. You see, there's two opposite extremes here. If I blame, I'm going to make people angry. If I belittle, then I shrug it off like it's no big deal at all. If I demonize, then this is the worst possible thing imaginable. If I dismiss, then why is anybody taking this thing seriously at all? You see, one approach maximizes things, and the other approach minimizes it. One approach blows it all out of proportion, gets everybody up in arms over this thing, and the other thing reduces it to nothingness, usually by reducing it to the absurd. Now think about the feelings that are generated on both sides, both for perpetrator and victim, attacker and defender. If they're maximizing things, if they're blaming, if they're demonizing, then the feeling that they get is anger, and the feeling that we get is fear. 
Meanwhile, on this side of the minimizing, if you're belittling or you're dismissing, then that engenders in the other party a feeling of pride and it engenders in you a feeling of shame. The most obvious thing you'll see is persecution on one side and mocking on the other. And often those things go hand in hand. The history of anti-religious or inter-religious violence is the blame side. They're up in arms against each other. The history of inter-religious and anti-religious rhetoric is the belittling side of things. It's mockery. It's ridicule. There's all kinds of fascinating scholarship out there. Whether it's anti-Semitism or anti-Catholicism, you blow them up as if they're some huge menacing evil that's going to take over the world. And at the same time, paradoxically, they're so stupid. They're so naive. They're so superstitious or pointless. It's like, make up your mind. Are they going to take over the world so we have to be up in arms against them? Or are they just the laughing stock of humanity? Don't give them a second thought. Again, are they the target of our weapons or the butt of our jokes? Either way, the feeling I have against them is negative. And the feeling they have about themselves ends up being negative also. Think about if you're on the receiving end. If they get angry and I start to get fearful, what am I tempted to do? Well, I don't want to cause any problems and so let me lower my level of commitment. Or they're making fun of me and that causes me to feel shame. And nobody wants to feel that. So I'll just change the way I live or the act or believe so that I fit in. Over here, I'm not a threat. I'm like you. Over here, I'm not an idiot. I'm like you. I've seen this over and over throughout the centuries. Whether it's Christians versus Jews, whether it's Catholics versus Protestants, whether it's Baptists versus Methodists, whether it's anybody against Mormons, Let's maximize them to make people angry. Let's minimize them to make people proud. And then their anger causes your fear or their pride causes your shame. And either way, you end up giving up your hold on faith. It's everywhere in Scripture. Let me just throw out a few. Alma 5 verse 30. Is there one among you that doth make a mock of his brother? There's the belittling side. Or that heapeth upon him persecutions? There's the blame. Alma 21.10, when Aaron is teaching the people, they were angry with him, there's the blame, and began to mock him, there's the belittle. Fast forward to Helaman 4 verse 12, it talks about smiting their humble brethren upon the cheek, there's the persecution, the blame, and making a mock of that which was sacred, there's the belittling, the mockery. When Samuel the Lamanite preaches, he says, you do cast out the prophets, Ooh, we've seen that already in this, and do mock them, there's the belittling, and cast stones at them and slay them, there's the blame. Ether chapter 7, verse 24, the people did revile against the prophets, there's the blame, and did mock them, there's the belittling. This isn't just a Book of Mormon issue. In the New Testament, almost every time it talks about the crucifixion, it says, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, there's the belittling, and to scourge and crucify. There's the blame. Again, was Jesus a laughingstock? Just mock him and send him away? Or is he a major threat? Then scourge and crucify him. How can he be both? And yet throughout history, again, it's ironic, they always make their target into both. Fast forward to the Restoration. And what does Joseph Smith say? The first time he tells the story of the first vision to this Methodist minister, he said, the man treated my communications not only lightly, there's the belittling, but with great contempt, there's the blame. Make up your mind, enemies of righteousness and truth.
Is truth something to be laughed at or something to be fought? Well, it's both. And either approach has the same goal. Just depends on which emotion do we want to work on in the person being attacked as well as in the people attacking them. With that in mind, keep an eye out for blaming and belittling throughout everything that you see in Alma chapter 30. Verse 13, where he begins round one, O ye that are bound down under a foolish and a vain hope. Why do you yoke yourselves with such foolish things? See those two approaches side by side? The blame side, I'm trying to rile them up, get them angry. You're bound down. You're yoked. You're in bondage to these priests and prophets that you're supporting. You're doing everything they tell you to. Remember back in verse 3, they're observing the commandments. They're strict in observing the ordinances of God. It's like people saying, man, you Mormons can't do anything. I got that when I was in high school. Your church is so strict. Just live a little. See, there's this blame side of things. Trying to get us angry. Trying to make the issues seem bigger than they really are. Can you sense the subtle or maybe not so subtle accusations of control, of authoritarianism, of lack of freedom or individuality? This goes back to this concern over prophets. They're controlling your lives. You see that all the time today in the church among people, especially former members who are fighting it. You'll keep seeing this round after round of Korahor. Let me just throw out some of the phrases so that we see that this really is an issue that keeps coming up. Verse 23, bind themselves down, usurp power and authority over them to keep them in ignorance, brought down according to thy words. Can you just sense that he's trying to make the prophets into some kind of sinister evil, some massive force that is just keeping you under their thumb? The next verse, 24, talks about, you say that this is people is a free people. Behold, I say they are in bondage. In 27, you keep them down, even as it were in bondage, that ye may glut yourselves with the labors of their hands. See, this brings in the economic along with the political. They want power over you so they can take money from you. You see former Latter-day Saints saying the same thing against the prophets today. They durst not enjoy their rights and privileges. They should be able to do anything they want, and yet you are telling them they can't. Again, blame, blame, blame. Verse 28, they durst not make use of that which is their own, lest they should offend their priests, who do yoke them according to their desires. Verse 31, you are leading away the people. Now the irony in all of this, we'll see in verses 32 through 35, is that Korahor himself knew this was not the case. He's trumping up these accusations to try to blow it all out of proportions, to get people all worked up. But he knows better. All those complaints of religious excess, of clerical greed, that, those were not issues. But he knew he could make them seem like issues and get people all worked up over them. Beware of the adversary's tendency to sensationalize things. Sex, violence, and race are the three big ones that people love to sensationalize. It's what sells movie tickets for Hollywood. And they're three of the easiest ways to get people up in arms over things about the church. Plural marriage, Mountain Meadows Massacre, race and the priesthood. But if you can't use those three, and those three seem to be off limits for Korahor since those weren't issues, then let's go with the second tier, power and money. 
Again, in the current church, if you can't take down the prophets and apostles with sex, violence, and race, then we'll settle for the second level and hit power and greed. There's no major sex scandal in the church these days, though some try to make the church's stand on LGBTQ issues look like one. There's no violence issues in the church. The Mountain Meadows Massacre was horrific, but it was an anomaly. And talk of the Danites has always been overblown. Racial issues have been a painful part of our past. But look what President Nelson is doing currently with the NAACP and amazing times ahead. So what do we see so much of instead today? That the LDS Church is power hungry and filthy rich. Core whore doing the same thing here. Even when he knew better. We'll see that also. Well, if that's the blame side of things, the, the demonize, the maximize, make one group feel angry so the other group feels fear, then the other side, go back to where it all starts in verse 13, and here's the belittling, here's the dismissiveness. Make one group feel pride so the other group feels shame. Here's the phrases to look for. Verse 13, he says, foolish, and again, foolish things. In 14, foolish traditions instead of prophecies from holy prophets. See, this attempt to rebrand things. These aren't prophecies from prophets. These are traditions from fathers. They are not holy. They are foolish. I've got to get you to rethink, relabel. I've got to change your perspective on this so you can let it go. It's unlikely that they'll just leave behind a prophecy from a holy prophet. But if I can convince them that it's just a foolish tradition from your ancestors, then it's pretty easy to leave behind. In 16, he talks about the frenzied mind and the derangement of the mind. Again, that's why ridicule is so often the favorite approach. If I can make you feel like an idiot, you must be insane to believe these things. Are you frenzied? Are you deranged? A 14-year-old farm boy with visions of the Father and the Son? A gold Bible? A rock and a hat? Stone spectacles? What the heck are you talking about? You must be insane. 23 repeats the words foolish two more times. 27 uses the word foolish and again relabels things, the traditions of your fathers. 31, one of the most demeaning, silly. The silly traditions of their fathers. The irony, there's no actual argument that he's making with this. It's just name calling. Let me just brand you foolish and silly. So you feel dumb and ashamed. Remember what the people in the Great and Spacious Building were doing? Pointing the finger and mocking at them. They didn't have the power to forcibly pull them away. Instead, they had to somehow work within to get the person partaking of the fruit to drop it themselves, to choose for themselves, to just leave it behind and slink away through the mists in hopes of reaching that Great and Spacious Building to join the mockers after leaving the mocked. Sticks and stones, right? They say they break our bones. Well, words can never hurt us. Well, that's often not the case, especially at a time where, thankfully, we frown on using sticks and stones. Well, all we've got then is words, and people wield them in hopes of hurting other people with it. More accurately, in hopes that people will end up hurting themselves. Only I can allow people to make me feel shame. But the words they use, man, it can work. In rhetorical studies, there's a term called an ideograph. 
An ideograph is a word or concept that's very ill-defined, very vague, but it has such cultural capital that if you can attach that word to someone, then it's game over. If you can attach the good ones to yourself, your cause will always win. If you can attach the negative one to the other side, it's over for them. Some even call them God words and devil words. Ever since the Enlightenment, words like common sense or reason have been God words, positive ideographs. That's why Thomas Paine used them as the titles of two of his most important works. What he said in common sense was not commonsensical for the time. But by labeling that, almost by trademarking common sense, then his readers would be like, oh yeah, that just makes, makes perfect sense. And anything that wasn't on his side, since he'd already taken hold of common sense for himself, could be dismissed as nonsense. Or just reverse the process. Make the other side look like it was nonsense. And what have you been left with? Huh, common sense on your side. Same with the age of reason. If I can make my anti-scriptural attacks look reasonable, by making the Bible look silly, then I win. Reason's on my side. And if you're a thinking person, come on all you foolish Christians out there, then of course you ought to drop the Bible behind with its childish superstitions and come accept enlightened rationality, which is on our side. Those intellectual ideographs still have a lot of cultural cachet these days. But now we've brought in some more social ones. Words like tolerant or love. Tough to beat those words. Why do you think both sides of the abortion debate want to claim a positive ideograph for themselves, a God word, like life or like choice? You can't fight either one of those words or you'll get labeled with the opposite. You're not pro-choice, then you must be anti-freedom. No wonder they fight so hard over these things. There's no middle ground. You've labeled the opposition with a devil term because you trademarked the God term for yourself. Take a more nuanced approach to LGBTQ issues. Try to find a compromise and walk the razor's edge to honor both civil rights and religious freedom. And what will you end up being labeled? With all kinds of devil terms like bigoted or prejudiced or unloving. It's all just rhetoric. And we have to be able to get past it and see past it and feel our way through it. But you see what Korhor is doing? You're so foolish. You're so silly. Like I said, in today's social issues, it'll be words like you're intolerant, you're bigoted. In terms of doctrinal or intellectual issues, you'll be called childish, naive, gullible, ignorant. In terms of moral issues, you'll be called puritanical or prudish, a goody-goody. It's all just shock and awe, smoke and mirrors trying to work upon your shame or your pride, whichever one you'll fall to, as long as you end up dropping the fruit, letting go of the iron rod, and either striding or shuffling towards the great and spacious building. Now that's the first pair, blame or belittle. The second pair, question beliefs or excuse behaviors. Now think about those two together. In terms of the fourth article of faith, questioning belief, there attacks your faith, Excusing behavior, that eliminates your repentance. Or even reverse the order and work backwards. Questioning belief, that weakens the Spirit's witness. And excusing behavior, that weakens your commitment through covenants made with Christ. You see, the first and the fourth have to do with belief. Faith in Christ and gift of the Holy Ghost. The second and third have to do with behavior. Repent of your sins and be baptized by immersion. Believe and have it confirmed 
versus change and then commit to that change. So on the one hand, Korahor, getting people to question their beliefs, to eliminate faith and spirit. Go back to verse 13 where his message begins. He speaks of a vain hope. He says, no man can know of anything which is to come. See, he's chipping away at faith there. He's, he's trying to dislodge the Spirit's confirmation. Your hope is vain. There's no substance to it. There's no guarantee. Your knowledge is impossible. It has to do with things that cannot be known. 14 we already saw, but again, calling them these things which you call prophecies. They're not. Nobody can know of things to come. He says that more clearly in 15. How do you know of their surety? You cannot know of things which you do not see. So you cannot know that there shall be a Christ. The technical term for this is epistemology. It's the study of knowledge. How do we know the things we say we know? And I'm amazed at how often conversations over faith issues come down to epistemological approaches. Again, ever since common sense and reason and rationalism and science and proof became Godwards in the Enlightenment, then things like faith and belief and hope diminish in importance, or at least diminish in prestige, that's for sure. You cannot know of things to come. You cannot know of spiritual things unless you can see it and touch it or weigh it or measure it. We'll see Korahor later. Demand a sign, right? Here's scientific empiricism. Interesting that in Alma 32, Alma is going to respond with some science of his own, an experiment upon the word. But granted, you're going to have to use the right senses for this particular experiment. And the senses or measuring devices that science limits itself to cannot reach or measure the things of God. Now think about it. If his truths are infinite and eternal, how do you measure that? How do you fit divinity onto a scale? I've taught this before. One of my favorite examples in Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift, when he wrote that book, was making fun of everything. Gulliver's first voyage was meant to give Swift a chance to make fun of religion. His second voyage, he makes fun of politics. His third, he makes fun of enlightenment philosophy. And his fourth, he makes fun of just human nature in general. It's an amazing book. But in that third voyage, when he sees an island floating in the air, great metaphor for academia detached from the real lives of people on the ground. Head in the clouds, no feet on the ground. Remember the great and spacious building? It floated, it had no foundation. Well, having seen that, Gulliver goes to a university and we see all the crazy experiments that are being performed with really no logic or meaning. But my favorite one is when he pokes his head into a laboratory and sees a bunch of scientists mixing paint color. Unfortunately, they're all blind. So all they can do is mix these paint colors and hope they're getting it right based on touch and smell. Gulliver says, yeah, they're going to need a little bit more practice. Well, of course. In fact, no amount of practice is going to change things. They're not using the right senses. Again, Alma 32 will describe which sense should we be using in this particular experiment. This one, Korahor is saying, no experiment is possible on this. You cannot know of things what you do not see. Talk about a tyrannical and narrowly defined empiricism. I want proof. So here's the experiment I demand. And here are the measuring tools that I'm allowing you to use. And we're put on the spot thinking, but that's not an instrument that will actually measure what you're looking for. 
See, this is worse than Gulliver's scientists. These are now sighted scientists being commanded by their superiors. I want you to mix paint color, but you're not allowed to use your eyes. You have to confine yourself to touch and smell. Can you picture the poor scientists stuck inside of that box? I can do what you want. I can provide the evidence, but not with that tool, not with those senses. You're going to have to open yourself up to other senses, other measuring rods. The things of God cannot be known by the natural man, but only by the spiritual man, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2. Some things simply cannot be seen by the naked eye. We need better instruments to measure a wider spectrum, not just red to violet, but infrared and ultraviolet. There are things outside the spectrum of what this particular sense will detect. So expand my senses. Allow the spirit to participate. Do not confine my knowledge to a circumscribed scientism that cannot account for my full humanity, let alone my hints of divinity. The epistemological issues are fascinating. By the way, in all my conversations with people who are struggling in their faith, it's been fascinating to see that typically at the beginning, it's propositional issues. Explain this to me, and why did this happen, and please answer these questions. It's propositional. I need information. But I've noticed with so many of them, it gets to a point that the propositional becomes the epistemological. It's like, I don't even want to hear the answers anymore. They're unsatisfying to me, or I have too many questions, or the, I don't believe the answers, or I don't even want to hear them. Because there typically are answers to the questions. So knowing that, what does the adversary do? Well, darn it. The propositional used to work. I flood them with doubts, but as people are able to answer them, I have to go from specific doubts, plural, to general doubt, singular. Shift from the propositional to the epistemological. So no longer are they questioning things, now they're just questioning in general. Can you even know? Instead of, these are the things I don't know, now it's, I just don't know if we can know anything at all. Because even over here, where there are blanks that we can't specifically fill in, the Holy Ghost says, oh, it's okay, it's all true. So what does the adversary do in response to that? Well, now we have to take down the Holy Ghost. And that's an epistemological issue. Oh, you can't possibly know just because of feelings and thoughts and things. That's just confirmation bias. You want it to be true so you convince yourself that it is. Those so-called spiritual feelings, that's just self-induced. To which I always say, man, if the Holy Ghost is self-induced, I'd be inducing all the time because I love the feeling of the Spirit. Right? Just keep hitting the button. I want more of that. I can't. When you've truly had spiritual experiences, you know that they are not self-induced because you cannot induce them. You know it is something outside of self. It's what makes them so undeniable. Remember Joseph said, I knew it, and I knew that God knew it. There's a second independent witness. Not, I knew it, and I convinced myself to know that I know it. That's actually Korahor later in this chapter. There is outside confirmation, and that's a very different thing than inward self-deception. You'll see that epistemology again later in verse 24. Ye do not know that they are true. Or in 26, you do not know that there shall be a Christ. Or 28, 
when he takes spiritual knowledge and just flippantly dismisses the whole thing by calling them their dreams and their whims and their visions and their pretended mysteries. Can you just hear this language dripping off the tongue of Korihor? I've seen so many historical skeptics use words like that. Hobbes or Spinoza or Hume or Paine, Voltaire, Diderot, Toland. You, the names go on and on. Dismissing prophecy with words like dreams. Ridiculing revelation with words like whims. Nothing but pretended mysteries. Later in 28, still questioning belief, still attacking epistemology. He calls God a being who never has been seen or known, who never was nor ever will be. You see the irony of what he just did? For someone who says you cannot know the future, well, he just gave a pretty bold prediction. God never will be. Didn't he just prophesy? Not bad for someone who denies the gift of prophecy. For someone who's saying that he cannot be known, well, he seems to know pretty sure of God's non-existence. I mean, agnosticism at least admits its limits. But this kind of declarative atheism, you'd have to be all-knowing yourself to be able to say that God cannot be known. You'd have to know the future yourself to claim that God never could be known. I love what Flannery O'Connor once wrote. She said, basically, that to be a real atheist, you'd have to know everything. It's like you'd have to be omniscient to be able to inventory the entire universe. If you knew everything that was in the universe and knew that God wasn't on the list, only then could you safely say, oh yeah, there is no God. He's not on the list. But as O'Connor jokes, but only God is omniscient, which suggests that only God could be an atheist. Well, we'll get more into some specifics later on. But he's adamant by the time you get to verse 48, where he says, you do not know that there is a God. And except you show me a sign, I will not believe. Again, this is ironic. Like we saw with his accusations of the church's power grabs and money hunger, when he knew that wasn't the case. Here also, he knows that there is a God. He'll admit that shortly. Knowledge is not the issue. Epistemology was not the thing. Alma knew it. Korihor knew it. Even after receiving the sign that he wanted, nothing changed for Korihor, which helps us see that all this talk of questioning belief, that third thing, really is about excusing behavior, the fourth thing. So see how he does it. Back to verse 17. This is one of the key verses in this chapter. He says, Every man fared in this life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospered according to his genius. Every man conquered according to his strength. Now, these are all false beliefs, but notice the behavior that they engender. And whatsoever a man did was no crime. That's what the Antichrists are after all along. Don't threaten me with condemnation by talking about salvation. Don't make me feel guilt by talking about forgiveness. I want to do what I want to do. No crime, no sin, no guilt, no law. We're back to the wicked priests of Noah, right? This gap between my beliefs and my behaviors? I don't want to change my behaviors. I don't want to bring them up. I don't want to repent of my sins. So what do I do? I tamp down my beliefs to justify my behaviors. That's why these two go hand in hand. If I can convince you that 
every man fares in this life according to the management of the creature, that every man prospers according to his genius, that every man conquers according to his strength, then guess what? There's no gap anymore. And whatever I do, there's no crime. I don't have to feel bad about anything. Until you come with your talk of repentance, of salvation, of forgiveness, of atonement, of Jesus, and all my hard work at pushing down the jack-in-the-box and closing the lid and attaching the latch goes up in smoke. I want to be able to do what I want to do. So let me alter my beliefs so I can excuse my behaviors. Now, the specific things he was talking about in verse 17, so applicable. You fare in this life how you, the creature is managed. The creature, even calling us that, just the creature. Can you sense this survival of the fittest, the law of the jungle? In the book of Revelation, John personifies this as the beast. I mean, countries still do that, right? The American eagle, the British lion, the Russian bear. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Daniel saw this in vision with beasts. John sees this in vision with beasts. All of that is to suggest in the last days, this is what the mentality will be. Not just geopolitically, but interpersonally. I'm going to rob from them before they rob from me. I'll underpay my employees and overcharge my customers because I can. I can prosper according to my genius. It's survival of the fittest. This is social Darwinism at its worst. You see, everything that Korahor is saying in verse 17 is the ends justify the means. Get ahead at all costs. You got strength, then conquer with it. You got genius, then prosper with it. It's interesting, by the way, that with that, you see both Sherem and Nehor, the prior antichrists. Remember, Sherem was all intellectual, perfect knowledge of the language of the people, whereas Nehor was a man of great strength. It would be Sherem that would say, prosper according to your genius. It would be Nehor that would say, conquer according to your strength. Korahor is combining the two. We're just creatures, and so is everybody else. So if I manage my creature better than you manage yours, then so be it. To the victor go the spoils. Let me introduce false beliefs to justify false behaviors. Now, like I said in our lesson from Abinadi, and if you haven't seen those, I would encourage you to go back. All this talk about the jack-in-the-box and the gap between belief and behavior, and do I push it down or do I bring it up? All of that is explained in those videos from Mosiah 11 through 17. And in either instance, whether it's Abinadi's approach or the wicked priests of Noah's approach, the goal was the same, the elimination of guilt so they could have joy. That's Korahor all over again. Whatever a man does is no crime. I'm publishing peace. I'm letting people do what they want. I'm eliminating the guilt gap. You see it in verse 18. He caused people to lift up their heads in their wickedness. He told them, when a man is dead, that's the end of it. You see why it has to be anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-resurrection? This goes back to what Amulek was explaining to Zeezrom. All of Amulek's talk about the resurrection was to point out there will be a judgment day, which is why this life matters. It's amazing all these pairs. Each time the prophet turning the crank on that jack-in-the-box, Abinadi crying repentance to the priests of Noah, Amulek teaching resurrection to Zeezrom, 
Alma teaching truth to Korahor, true belief to bring back true behavior. Again, that phrase in 18 about lifting up their heads in their wickedness. They just want to be happy. And I want to let them feel that. You see in 22, when Godona asks Korahor, why do you want to interrupt the rejoicings of the righteous? It's almost like Korahor is saying, well, because I want rejoicings too. You won't let me be happy, then why should I let you? But again, that goes up against the wickedness never was happiness reality that Alma will later teach his son. That's why he accuses them in verse 23 that the reason you're usurping power and authority is to keep them in ignorance so they can't lift up their heads. We just want the freedom to sin so that we can be free to be happy in it. It's all this talk of Jesus and forgiveness that make sin and punishment such realities. We just want to lift up our heads and rejoice like all of you people seem to be doing. 25, he hits it one more time. You say this people is a guilty and a fallen people because of the transgression of a parent. Why do you keep talking about the fall? See, he's trying to get rid of that too. You see how atonement and fall are so connected? Christ and sin. We need the one because we deal with the other. He's throwing the whole thing away. I say a child is not guilty because of its parents, which is actually half true. We would say roughly the same thing with the second article of faith, right? But you see what he's trying to do? This is not the place to have an extended discussion on the false doctrine of original sin. It's not original sin that Korahor is trying to dismantle. It's sin itself. It's not just the effect of the fall. It's the fall. That becomes crystal clear when 25 turns into 26. Yeah, I was talking about the fall to get rid of that. But what I'm really after, remember, what did you learn about me first? I'm anti-Christ. Well, here it is. You say that Christ shall come, but I say you do not know that there shall be a Christ. You say he'll be slain for the sins of the world. Well, that's just another foolish tradition of your fathers. And then he says this in 27. You don't want them to look up with boldness. Boldness in their iniquity. Unapologetic about their sin. Proud of their unworthiness before God, a God whose existence they deny. That's why in 28 he talks about not wanting to offend some unknown being who they say is a God. There's no God to offend, so we can do anything we want. No wonder when Korahor finally comes to his senses, he says in verse 53, that he taught these things because they were pleasing unto the carnal mind. That's for sure. Every carnal behavior being excused by a corrupted mind. Maybe that's what carnal mind really is. Introducing carnal doctrines in order to establish a carnal mindset that justifies any and all carnal behaviors. All of this goes back to what he said right at the beginning in 17. There could be no atonement made for the sins of men. And if no atonement then no sin. We're justified to do anything we'd like. Now, I really hope that that made some sense. I know we were jumping all over this chapter, from round one to round two to round three, but I think we need to kind of combine the decks to be able to see just how much of these four issues are occurring. To blame and belittle, or demonize and dismiss, to get you to question your beliefs, in order to excuse any and all behaviors. That's the approach of the Antichrist.